Hello everyone, this is Hank from the Men Among Men Stories podcast and Fire Force Ventures with a quick message before the beginning of this podcast. The podcast you're about to listen to, which is our 13th episode, deals with the first Anglo-Afghan War and relating that situation to the ongoing Kabul airlift, which is happening right now at the time of recording this message. We actually recorded this podcast on the 24th of August, 2021. Two days later, suicide bomb attacks at Kabul, uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport in Afghanistan killed a large number of civilians and 13 U.S. service members, among them members of the United States Marine Corps and U.S. Navy. We weren't aware of this event at the time of recording this podcast. It it hadn't happened yet, but this episode is dedicated to their memories and to all holding the perimeter right now at Kabul Hamid Karzai International Airport. Romeo Mike, this is Giant. I got your visual. Roger, I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, get them out. You are listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast with myself, Hank, and Bindu. Hey. Hey to you too, man. Imagine, if you will, a global power commanding imperial prestige a benchmark for culture, economics, and martial prowess. It emerges as such after defeating a massive existential threat arising from so-called godless revolutionaries. Defeating this totalitarian force in every possible way, they become top dog. It has been top dog now for decades, exercising its global influence from the Americas into Europe and Central Asia. They play the great game one of international intrigue and power projections. You could call this nation-building. Building nations, states, and colonies that empower the centralized authority of this great empire. But something goes wrong. From the hills of Afghanistan comes another existential threat, one that must be stopped at all costs. Fury ensues as a grand expeditionary army is sent to stop the threat and nation-build. The old regime is deposed, in favor of a puppet state, in favor of the great empire. A bitter campaign ensues. One of the great empire is somehow unable to win. The real reasons for war become muddied. The myth of invincibility that has been established over almost three decades is shattered overnight. The old regime returns to Kabul and Kandahar. The great empire is sent packing. Imperial cohesion breaks down as old allies question the waning empire, chaos erupts. Now, you might think that what I just read is a reference to current events. Because as of where we are right now, it's been about three weeks since the United States has pulled out of Afghanistan, and already it has fallen to Taliban forces. But this uh, sort of paragraph we've jotted down is actually in reference to another war that happened almost 200 years ago. This narrative. Yeah. This narrative. 
but the narrative you, is pretty much the same for both conflicts so yeah. <clears throat> food for thought it's a weird way of starting it very weird way of but these are weird times as these you know. are indeed weird times um so that story that i guess that story narrative whatever you want to call it that we just read there kind of just happened mm-hmm. but we've heard this story before because history rhymes yes and we have definitely heard this story before it's kind of a meme now when people say that afghanistan is the graveyard of empires but again history rhymes there is truth to it and the the anglosphere has definitely experienced this one before in 1840 the british empire was that top dog in the same way that america was the top dog in the aftermath of the cold war the British Empire becoming top dog was the result of exercising colonial authority um, through various conflicts being relatively successful and obviously being the victor in a great existential war that they also experienced through the wars with Napoleonic France, which had dominated the beginning of the 1800s. Basically, the 1800s brought war in the same way that the aftermath of the Second World War brought a, a cold war with the United States. Now, I'm not going to try to imply that history repeats itself. I don't think it does. There's obviously a lot of differences and striking differences <laughs> yes, between so. the United States and how it, quote-unquote, nation builds and empire builds and what the intentions and methodologies and... I guess, modus eventual, operandi. yeah, modus operandi, eventual outcome of the British Empire during this period. So it's not the exact same, right? But it's it's kind of like the same story, in a way. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned to me before that you think, uh, you know, it, and I think we we talked about this already. But history doesn't repeat itself; but it rhymes. Yeah, and and that I think I don't know who said true. that. I, I don't either, Someone's smart. Someone's Someone smarter than us. Someone's smart. We're going to look it up. It's going to be like Hitler or something. Yeah. <laughs> just, Perfect. Yeah. Um, so on, on that note of like of like smart smart people, there is uh, the Strauss-Howe generational theory, the fourth turning. In a nutshell, it is a kind of a meme, but why don't you well, describe it well? Describe you, it some of you guys have probably seen a meme or a, an infographic that basically – or. Or maybe, maybe like just a quote that's, you know, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. That is sort of a gross oversimplification of the idea of Strauss-Howe generational theory, but it's basically the, the rise and fall of empires, which is yeah. probably my sort of, I guess, favorite thing about learning about history. I like hearing about how societies sort of you know rise and fall and sort of why they why they do both not because i think we can necessarily like build a blueprint for a a society from it but just because it's interesting its own sake like it's 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 a grand the grand parade the grand story of human beings and of course strassel generational theory is a lot more than that meme like it's a it's a legit political science yeah it's it's very complicated and, actually uh, we're, we're not political scientists no i did do a minor in political science but did yes. you actually i actually did yeah 
Oh my god, I feel bad for you. <laughs> just a sucked. Why? It's the it's <laughs> why it's actually the courses were great, especially so, international. Anyways, uh, your crappy degree aside, uh, people have looked and thought very deeply about this because we seem to see these cycles in history, and there's a Hegelian way of looking at history, right, where it's this constant slave master dynamic, whether that be. Uh, this, the masters that controlled a massive slave population during the Roman Empire, and then we have this, I guess, this feudal relationship where it's like lords and like aristocracy and um, the serfs, right? So we have this like this like power power differential re- relationship, and it's this constant like shifts and revolutions, and then ultimately we're going to come to this like great revolutionary ending, this utopian world created as a result is that hegel or is that marx it's like you you get what i'm trying to say yeah lefty theory well i simplify it to that right there's more to it just like there's more to strauss how generational theory yeah how is like a little different yeah well there's two basic theory one is that sort of we're all moving to a point and that the other is we're sort of constantly going through the same cycles yeah so we we mentioned this because the british empire basically came kind of to the end of one of these cycles that that Strassel generational theory discusses. There's like there's like four kind of cycles. There's like a kind of there's a nomad phase. There's a nomad pioneer phase, and then it, it builds they, up. They, one of the things that Strassel generational theory talks about, which yeah. is where it sort of contradicts the meme a bit, is this idea that. Uh, each age has its own different... Like, you have yeah, technological yeah. progress as kind of this bigger narrative, which is marching towards something. Right. And again, it's like, it's pioneer. But in, yeah, yeah, in, each, in each technological age, yeah. you have this cycle. So it's kind of like cycles yeah, yeah, within yeah. a so, grand thing, yeah, which, yeah. which I think is actually a correct yeah. way of looking at history, So it, it, to be honest. Again, do you remember it was, a, it was like pioneer, nomad, like nomad pioneer, and then it goes to like to like, like a certain, like a golden age? And then a fall, and then and there's like a fall, fall decay. Right? Yeah. There's like there's like I, I don't know the exact terms, and I'm I'm not we're not political science, despite Bindu being the goddamn expert here, we're not <laughs> we're not political science people, but we, we we're not we, heavily we, we can kind of feel science. we can kind of feel like uh, when we're looking at the situation that's ongoing in Afghanistan right now at the time recording this 24 uh, August 2021. It's going to constantly develop. It's developed a lot over the past few days with, like, the Taliban memeing on Twitter and stuff. <laughs> yeah. So we've seen a lot of stuff that we had no – like, if you told us, like, a month ago that we'd be seeing Chad Taliban memes, we'd probably tell you, you know, you're out to lunch, right? Yeah. But here we are, right? Even, like, a month ago, I think. I was like, oh, yeah. I remember you made a post the night Kabul fell on your – secret personal instagram going like oh yeah cobble is not gonna last a week and i remember by the time i like like i got up in the morning and i checked your checked your instagram story i'm like uh, it's it already f- fell it yeah. already fell yeah right well i said yeah. it'll fall within the week and technically yeah. it did it just fell like six hours <laughs> six into the hours week <laughs> after after you made that post yeah right yeah um, and I remember people were saying like oh it's not gonna last another six months and then like a week I remember just a week later yeah so it was Kandahar fell, and then... 20 Kabul years fell. fell. And this war has been going on for yeah. 20 years, and Afghanistan fell back to the Taliban, like, what, 20 days? Yeah, I know. <laughs> More or every, less. Every decade bought them another day. Yeah. It, it was just crazy to think about. So it feels like we're in this period of decay, and... Um, Certainly I, of American yeah, sort of power projection. Or, you know, 
our, our point to this this whole discussion that we're going to have today is looking at a very very similar situation and kind of what happened afterwards because there oh by the way so after decay like spoiler alert there's chaos that's like that's the hard hard times creating strong men part and that part's never pretty we have a lot of those periods through history um so that you know if you go to strauss generation theory like big events like the uh 30 years war Follow the Western Roman um, Empire. Yeah, follow the Roman em- uh, Western Empire. May- maybe like um, the aftermath of the Black Death in some ways. Yeah, aftermath. Yeah, that's definitely one of the moments. Uh, wor- right? World War One, definitely. Yeah, um, World War One, and then World War Two. The War thirty years II. later, right? Yeah, yeah. It tends to be like thirty year cycles. Yes. Um, at the beginning of the narrative, there you did. There's mention the little ice age or something yeah. that happened in the 1700s. Yeah. So yeah, the, again, just to revisit like what you said at the very beginning with your little narrative, uh, that you actually wrote quick prior you for writing this is the first time we probably wrote something that was like our own intro yes anyways yeah we gotta do that more we, often yeah this is kind of fun but anyways um you mentioned like three decades mm-hmm. right whereas uh the united states defeated the soviet union about 30 years ago now because we're, we're yeah in the mm-hmm. actually exactly, obviously a very different kind of victory than almost is, exactly 30 30 years ago now because 2021 yes. right so 90, yeah in the in the early 90s when the soviets were like no longer falling exists. apart yeah, yeah. the soviet apart. empire crumbled in 90 i mean you could yeah. i could argue i would argue it was crumbling in 89 but it yeah, fell yeah, 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 decisively, yeah. Uh, decisively in 91 in 91 so yeah. we're exactly at 30 years which is kind of weird that ominous we, um, kind of weird yeah. yeah yeah so there's a lot there's a lot going on obviously it's like yeah we like kind of we kind of lost a war here uh as far as we meaning Bible, members of the, the sort of the, the west, west nato yeah. forces are I think most people know in this we're based in Canada. Our forces fell, or fell. Our forces fought, fought, fought yeah. and fell, actually, alongside the Americans yes. in Afghanistan. 100, 158 troops. Yeah, 158 Canadian of forces. Canadian soldiers died in Afghanistan, mo- most of them in Kandahar. And, yeah, and I so... I don't know if they were in Kandahar, the Panjway. Panjway? Yeah. yeah. But, like, you could say they're based around CAF, but it was, yeah, most of the fighting Panjway. Panjway mm-hmm. district. Anyways, uh... Uh, on, like on that note like you mentioned 30 years so we're we're approaching the end of our 30 years of after our great mm-hmm. our great period like a, like a kind of a victory i guess you could say yes right the the good or sorry the strong men creating good times right mm-hmm. not trying to be misogynistic or anything it's just it's just the <laughs> why are there no strong why, women why are no hank strong women? why are there no strong women in this meme <laughs> Because historically, like, yeah, don't answer that. We'll get yeah, more trouble. More trouble. <laughs> I can get into that if we want. What's anyway. the joke? Uh, men's studies is just history. <laughs> the same, uh, these are not. I I disavow what my co-host just said. But anyways, um, yeah, we feel like we're at the end, and uh, this was the Anglo-Afghan War of eighteen forty-two. Well, I guess forty-one to forty-two felt that way and and meant it like there's some really profound similarities and the ensuing chaos is kind of crazy to think about what what happened to the british empire which by the way actually exercised in in some ways more direct authority than the united states which was the main player in afghanistan um exercises over the world now so again the british empire in that period 
had more territorial like land that was like straight up protectorate not just like we have business interests here like we own this partially your leaders are subservient to us this is we are an empire our troops guard your streets oh, yeah our troops guard your streets right we raise local regiments under british flags the united states doesn't quite no. didn't quite do that in afghanistan yeah. and they, no. they don't do that they make a point that we don't raise the american flag over your army bases these are yours these are your regiments these are your divisions these are your tanks these are your guns and regardless of how it you know how what's the modus operandi the result has been the same yes i mean one could definitely argue that that's just it's a different time now like the wilsonian nation state and everything we don't yeah you can't yeah. european nations aren't allowed to just take over the rest of the world anymore yep. um but yeah the, but the, uh, but the that's china's job but that, now but, but that, <laughs> the, the, um, that that chaos the period of chaos that ensued oh, was is absolutely the cataclysmic same. for the for the british empire and it's a it's a miracle that they uh they came out of it so we'll talk about that so anyways we probably all know how this global war on terror started it started on well it was probably like you could even argue it started in the 90s with these mm-hmm. generally sunni islamist groups yeah that don't follow like mainline sunni islam based out of saudi arabia for the most part most part starting to starting to under the leadership of a certain bearded man osama usama bin laden mm-hmm. uh and groups like al-qaeda starting to rock the boat a little bit in yeah. the in the political world right there's a uh, attack on the world trade center actually first in 1993 right? yeah yeah and then there was the attack i think it was the kenyan 90- embassy yeah. Kenyan Embassy, USS Cole. There's USS Cole t- was in 96 or 97. Yeah, no, 99. 99, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So, like, these, there's, like, there's, there's stuff going down. There's stuff, Stirrings. Like, and then the big one hits, and that's September 11th, mm-hmm. um, 2021. Or not 2021, that's the 20th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Uh, my thoughts are on other, my thoughts are all over the place right now, but uh, 2001, right? I'm just so used to saying 2021 right now. It's a weird year. But uh, September 11th, the U.S. military-industrial complex immediately, like, ratchets into gear, right? An existential threat has emerged. It had been... Quite spectacular. Yeah, yeah. This establishment had been relatively dormant since the Cold War. There there was, obviously, and, you know, we, we had a long discussion with our bunch of people about this. I won't say who. <laughs> yeah, I don't want Doxum, but like we we had a we had a very long discussion about this, and there was shit. There, you know, America did fight some small brushfire conflicts on the periphery of its influence. So in Somalia, it was obviously Operation Gothic Serpent, the the Black Hawk Down incident, which mm-hmm. a lot of people know about. A bunch of Americans were killed. I think nine, eight, eighteen Americans were killed, and the nineteenth American was killed the next day by a mortar attack. Uh, so yeah, there was fighting there. There was first Gulf War, obviously, like right after the Cold War, first Gulf War, right? People, Americans died there. There's conflict. Um, Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia. There's a peacekeeping mission. Well, I guess it was a NATO 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 mission. mission. It started as peacekeeping, turned into NATO. And there was probably stuff that we don't even know about, like smaller things. But yeah, we, we made a point while we were talking about that basically between the end of Vietnam, which was a real humbling 
experience for America. Yes. Between Vietnam and September 11th, 2001, there wasn't really a huge war that America lost. Most of them were successes, the intervention in Grenada, First Gulf War, Yugoslavia, I mean, the Serbs were defeated, NATO achieved objectives. Somalia was kind of only the real one where it was kind of a quagmire and not, like, I mean, it was a very small war on the sort of world stage, I guess. They, it didn't destroy American morale. No, it was kind of just like, okay, this place is screwed up. We're pulling out. Yeah. Yeah. So it didn't destroy American morale. He got off relatively lightly. The British had the same experience going into their first Anglo-Afghan war. Mm -hmm. For the most part, after the Napoleonic Wars, which was their great victory against a totalitarian threat in the form of... Mr. Bonaparte. Mr. Mr. Bonaparte, who was a godless revolutionary as far as Whig politicians in the UK were concerned. Yeah. And, and even more as far as Tory politicians oh, yeah. were concerned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, was, he was a evil, godless revolutionary, yeah. and he was going to destroy Europe, and he's like the worst, right? And he wasn't a very good guy sometimes, but like they, 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 were, they were scared of him. They're terrified. Yes. He, he embodied everything that the old aristocracy of Europe like wasn't. Yeah, but he, at the same time, he also embodied this giga giga version of it. <laughs> yeah, well, also everything that like English, the English political and to some extent social system is based on this idea of you know constitutional monarchism, and yeah. has been since the Glorious Revolution. Arguably, has been since Magna Carta. Um, so by the time of the Napoleonic Wars, we're talking well, two hundred years. They, yeah, they they represent like, no, one hundred hundred twenty yeah. years. Napoleon represented everything like yep. he represented both like sort of this absolute ruler this tyrant but he also represented like revolution upholding like you have to understand England is kind of a society that's sort of built around the middle class both both of those don't sound good to them since so, the sort of Jacobites got checked out in, they, they yeah, are very yeah. a middle class in, society in every yeah. conceivable way he was anti anti britannia yeah right anti anti yes. uk anti yeah. britain whatever you want to call it the anti-british mm -hmm. empire and now he was gone yes he, he's, he's, he doesn't exist anymore and they have still have all these colonies they survived this war with actually they actually because, get stronger the, yeah, they because of the, uh, yeah yeah so I'll, I'll talk just really quickly the uh continental system right like napoleon basically says you can't trade with trade with uh the rest of like mainland europe unless you go through us or whatever it's just a cutoff. Exclude Britain, yeah. And the Britain, the Brits are like, okay, cool, but we have like all these colonies still. You know, not the United States anymore, not the thirteen colonies, but they still had like British North America, and they had India. Uh, where when we get a little deeper into the history of the Anglo-Afghan War, a lot of the units that are present, um, at the end, basically of this war the very bitter end most of them are indian regiments i think it was three native regiments total uh they have their colonies in the caribbean they i think they still have some presence in the east indies like i mean like far east right uh burma there's influence in burma there's Af influence now in africa they're starting to have more and more influence in africa and we you know we kind of just looked at um the because the easiest way to kind of track it is like the Wikipedia um, victories and defeats chart, right? It's just very, very simplistic chart. But if you look at it, it's like all the wars after the Napoleonic War are 
like victory 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 and there are these tiny little conflicts in these far-flung colonies and it's like these little tiny wars it's victory 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 because the british redcoat that defeated napoleon at waterloo was now like invincible he was he was now the best in europe mm-hmm. he was still the scum of the earth he wasn't quite a hero yet but he was the best in europe and he knew that going into battle there was one inconclusive war the anglo-ashanti war but yep. Again, Anglo much Ashanti or Anglo Hosa? I think it was. I think, one, it, was, I think it was the Ashanti War. Was, okay, or it might have been both. But yeah. much like yeah. Somalia, that didn't really do anything to the yeah. They didn't British technically morale. win. Yeah. Yeah. No. It the was the same was, way America wasn't defeated in Somalia. Just no, like, they slapped. just decided to leave. They're like, yeah, screw this. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like they they they, they, they were completely overrun and it was like, oh no, like we surrender and it was like a disaster yeah. and they had left a bunch of arms behind. No, they left relatively. Yeah. And it's not like the status quo yeah. immediately yeah. collapsed as soon as and they we're left not, Yeah, we're not saying like Gothic Serpent was a was a walk in the park either. Like people died; it was terrible. It's was like insane battle, right? Mm-hmm. But when, when Medal of Honors are being awarded, like you know, it's not a good day. Actually, it's like the worst day in the world for a lot of these guys. So, um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't a particularly easy experience, but it wasn't like they had left boatloads of american guns behind and 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 hightailed it without telling the local commanders and and also had like had the embassy overrun and had had fifteen thousand americans still stuck there it wasn't anything like that it was just maybe we shouldn't be here and they decided to leave early it was more like the equivalent of i'm thinking of like yeah. the I'm thinking for some reason the French and Indian War when the british would like surrender a yeah, fort yeah. yeah a fort like fort william henry to the French. Yeah. And then... Not not, not too big. So yeah. our, our point is the British had a little tiny setback. I think is Anglo-Hosa. Anyway, someone can fact check us. So, it's somewhere in Africa. It's not that prominent though. Like, like, like maybe like five people died or whatever. It wasn't yeah. a big deal, but they did have like one little incident. But beyond that, spotless record. Because again, the British red coat was invincible and they ruled the seas. They had naval supremacy in oh, every, yeah. every conceivable way. Uh, after Trafalgar, and it just it didn't stop for hundred, hundred plus, almost a hundred years basically, until like Jutland, I would say. Yeah, and, that, and even then it was inconclusive. Yeah. Yeah, and even even then, like they they were still pretty powerful. I think it. I think that the myth died at Jutland. It yes. Sank. Yeah. It sank at Jutland. Yes. Years later. True. So yeah. my point is, hundred years of naval supremacy during this period, spotless land army record, right? And there's a new existential threat. And that threat is no longer Napoleon, but for reasons I I still don't quite understand, no matter how much I read into them and how many books and articles and stuff I read and how many histories I look at, how many, how many times I watch the Charge of the Light Brigade, <laughs> I still don't get it. But the existential threat, threat now comes from Russia. Which is actually a former ally of Britain yes. during the um, Napoleonic Wars, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's Russia for some reason. Yeah. Now, see, in some ways, this does make sense again from this sort of like middle, like Russia is seen as this backward, authoritarian, tyrannical regime. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, they, there's a lot of countries in the world you could have made that claim to, but Russia, for some reason, Britain was convinced that Russia was making moves towards india through central asia even though there was one russian czar just one who was assassinated 
close to the beginning of the uh, 19th century who ever made plans for that. The, re the rest basically said, we're not touching India with a 20-foot pole. But yet there was this incredible, called the Great Game. I mean, that's how big it was that has that sort of very simplistic name. There was this huge contest for influence in Central Asia. Yep. The fear was that they're going to either come through the Black Sea, they're going to come through the Caucasus, wherever they could come through, they would sneak their tentacles into India. At this point, India was still controlled by the East India Company, which most people that have re read like vaguely into history have probably heard of. Or watched a Pirates of they... the Caribbean movie or something. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> probably. They were a extremely powerful corporation. That's the best way to look at them. They weren't exactly a state entity, but they had tacit approval to act on behalf of the state to advance the state's objectives of empire slash nation building. You could, I guess the modern term would be nation building in this post-Wilsonian world. Um, back then it was just straight up we're building an empire. And the East M India Company was powerful enough to the point where they had their own private army. So among these were the first Gurkha regiments that we've seen. Many, many regiments of local Indian infantry and cavalry raised generally by local British allies to police this uh, this territory that they controlled through a very intricate network of trade and political intrigue. The East India Company, however, flies their own flag. They don't fly the Union Jack. India is not England or Scotland, or Ireland, or Wales. It is India. It is British India. It's, it's, it's like its own thing, right? And for that reason, you can imagine why it was perceived as, as this, like, again, I, I still don't understand it fully, but, like, because it, it's kind of nonsensical. Because, again, like, as you mentioned, there wasn't actually a Russian intention to take over. But through the combination of just getting bad information from local sources, and, you know, just general 19th century paranoia <laughs> i guess you could also argue yeah. empires kind of need an opponent yeah to, yeah like like think of it rome was the yeah. greatest when it was facing like hannibal like it had the most not the greatest but the most drive or like you or, know, or like or like competing emperors right yeah or yeah. like you know fighting you know a thing like the, the celts or the yeah. dacians once it became like just sort of policing generic the, yeah. barbarians they were policing like what the once frontier, there wasn't yeah. a versin yeah. or something like yeah. It was. It, uh, it sort of lost steam pretty quickly. Exactly. Yeah. So we we go over the psychological reasons forever for why empires need empires yeah. to, to fight to survive, to, right? Um, but but we can imagine like because of the fact that the control is actually relatively loose. Again, it's a corporation that has its own private army, but it's, it's not the state itself. The state itself could theoretically lose. Uh, that corporation's control and it it had happened multiple times during the age of exploration where like companies would get big and then they would collapse and get big and then collapse um, and state power as a result would change accordingly uh, in canada the pr most prominent example was the northwest company which was uh competing with the hudson's bay company in canada that's like that's like our history anyways and and they collapsed they were influenced more so by the french in some ways of like the 
the kingdom of France and it's kind of a long story but they they collapse so anyways we see this like kind of everywhere and there's there's Dutch companies that have the similar experience there's probably like German companies that we don't even know about that, that were doing stuff from like the East Indies and stuff there's all these like little companies there was a there was a a free trade company from England going to Moscow at one point from what I understand during the age of exploration there was all kinds of stuff going on and the control they influenced was very indirect it's like this is spheres of influence stuff right you're not planting a british flag it's not it's not the conquistador style per se right because early on in the age of well not early on i would say within the first hundred years of the age of exploration all these empires looked at spain and how they screwed up their currency by taking direct control over these colonies and then just taking all the gold and not re recognizing how inflation works, that, that doesn't work. That's part of the reason the British and French relied so much on privateers in the early... Because basically pirates yeah, yeah, yeah. were kind of okay, like a we'll, more... We'll, oh my god, I'm not the... letting you get into this pirate tangent. I know you... <laughs> we'll, we'll do a pirate podcast one day because you you love your pirates, I know. I do like pirates. I, I'm going to have to stop you from going on that yeah. tangent. But anyway, it's a similar principle. Yeah, it's, similar, it's a yeah. pri Pirates are basically private military yeah. contractors and often would but take over islands and things and the, run them the, in the name the, of the, the crown. The, the, the key is state control is very weak, and that's what it's like in India, right? In 1840, they get word that one of the characters that we're going to talk about a little bit here uh dost muhammad khan a local leader in a place called afghanistan he was i get would you call him like a like a spiritual leader or a no 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 he, he was more of a political, political. he okay. was an emir i believe okay so he's like the equivalent of like a king like yes a local king. yeah not, a, mi not, a minor king yeah a minor king right that's like the best way to describe him. he's like a minor king um in europe he'd be like a duke or something Right? Yeah, he he'd just gone through a bit of a civil war actually, and and ousted another sort of arrival for Afghanistan. Right, and he had uh, okay. So no, we'll, we'll sorry, you're jumping ahead here. He's he does prior to his major interactions with the British, he establishes himself as a, a guy with a little bit of military prowess. He fights actually a war. He fights a war with the Sikhs in i think is the 1830s is that right it's just uh, like it's just like yes I before this so. this this stuff kicks off and in 1840 word gets back to the british of kind of what's happening in the country so as you mentioned he fights the civil war amongst his own people his own tribe or the different tribes rather in afghanistan he comes out as top dog in afghanistan Afghanistan is actually adjacent to British India, which, uh, just for like geographical reference purposes, includes the modern state of Pakistan, which neighbors the modern state of Afghanistan, right? So British India is not just like modern day India; it's also it also includes ba uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh. It's like this huge and parts of Nepal too. It's oh yeah, it's, it's, big. it's, it's massive. Big. Yeah, so it it's like the entire Indian subcontinent, which does border on Afghanistan. It's like right on their doorstep. And this guy's suddenly taken charge, and the British are watching, and they get word that he's cozy with the Russians, this new existential threat that's rising. Uh, this doesn't sit well <laughs> with British authorities. This doesn't sit well with the East Indian Company, who, through a very like complex but 
in some ways very flimsy network of relations with locals and they learn how flimsy it is about 10 years later we'll, we'll get into that but through their rather flimsy hold on india like the russians could very easily now come through afghanistan afghanistan as far as they're concerned had fallen under the influence of the russians it was now in the same way that india was slowly being co-opted by the british empire through the east india company through Dost Muhammad Khan, this political leader in Afghanistan, um, the Russians were now exerting their influence. You know, where have we heard this Russian collusion stuff before? Anyways, I digress. This was bullshit. Again, where have we, where have we heard this narrative before where the Russian collusion was bullshit? Anyways, again, Dost Muhammad Khan did actually have some, like, interactions with uh, agents from Moscow, like diplomatic agents, but he was an Afghan, and if you know anything about history, the Afghans value their independence. Mm -hmm. They do not like being dicked around by other empires, nationalities, peoples, especially if they're a Pashtun. There and was and Dost Khan was a Pashtun. He, he was like, no, like we're we're a warrior, martial people, and it's like cool, like you guys are a warrior, martial people too, but you're like orthodox and you live thousands of kilometers away i i don't care like i'm i'm gonna do my own thing i like i appreciate the support because obviously the russians do kind of want to get their tentacles around the world at this time it's not a total like exaggeration that they want to exert their influence but they were kind of backwards and they weren't really ever gonna be a major thing. yeah and, and the, the the russians like were trying to gain some influence in afghanistan but they weren't trying to like move the 12th army or whatever <laughs> yeah. whatever the russian regiments are called yeah. in right up to the border of uh pakistan modern day pakistan yeah that wasn't gonna happen no so, the, the, this was literally just a few emissaries well so there was um, there was a little bit of russian collusion conspiracy theory going on and damn the british were just not gonna have it so they're there are a lot of regular British officers stationed in India at this point. And, uh, when, you know, when we, when we did a little bit of research on this, um, we found one by the name of James Rat Rattray. It's kind of a hard name to pronounce. Rattray. R-A-T-T-R-A-Y. Second Grenadiers of the Bengal Army. There was, there was three armies, right? Um, that were, like, separate and almost independent. Again, this is, like, a flimsy hold. So they got three independent semi-autonomous armies operating with like semi-autonomous regiments and he's he's here at this time in the 1840s in uh india and everybody in india is kind of on high alert especially if they're a european as to as to what's going on when das muhammad khan takes over afghanistan and among the indian regiments that are raised for some sort something something some sort of operation against the afghans is the 44th foot a european regiment this specific regiment was raised in 1741 um it had fought against the jacobites and stuff french indian wars american revolution napoleonic wars through egypt egypt napoleonic wars through egypt north america anglo-burmese wars in the um 1820s they had been all over the world. They're an expeditionary unit. They're one of the units that goes over, um, basically to the like Pakistani border. And they're 
they're itching for a fight. And uh, I think basically like Dos Mamikon take that that's where Cassus Belly basically they just invade. Right? They give them a little bit of time, but they're like, you know what? We're not gonna let this sit. There's strong evidence that you are colluding with the Russians. So we're gonna march in. And the British troops actually march all the way to Kabul. Right? Through the desert. It's I think late fall at this point, eighteen forty. They march there and uh they're relatively successful in you know, leading the charges of the 44th foot. Um, among them is uh, this this guy I mentioned. What's, what's his name again? Rattray. James Rattray. Yeah, Rattray. And he's a pretty good artist, and he's he's got probably some of the best, uh, I think they're lithographic depictions of Afghan troops during this era. Go, like, depicting... It's a, it's a contemporary depiction of the Afghan soldiers during this era, particularly the Pashtun warriors, and they're armed with a fairly rudimentary matchlock musket that they made they make super ornate. It's called the Jazale. I'm probably mispronouncing that. But it if you imagine a brown vest and you like warp it in a weird fancy um Arabic way, you give it a bit of a squiggle at the buttstock, you have a Giselle, and you and you turn that brown vest into like a uh, match lock rather than a flint lock. So, this is technology at this point that is like 200 years old. This is not exactly top tier stuff. Um, the Afghans like very ornately decorate these Giselle muskets. You'll find a lot of antique examples out there that are very very decorated and from the contemporary depictions the one we're looking at looks it's got some studding in there right we're, we're looking at one of them right now like you can see some brass brass studs and stuff um some arabic markings and designs not not arabic like, like i guess it would be pashtun 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 but the best way to describe it is like very arabic or like persian and in, in nature that's what these these weapons look like but they're they're pretty old and on top of that, they have a this pretty distinctive sword called the uh, Peshkabs, Pesh which is still used today. It's got a very um, distinctive, like it's like a backward edge. It's a forward curving. Sorry, for a forward curving knife. Um, uh, it, it's kind of almost the size and sort of it's like a machete more than it is a, yeah. a sword or a knife. It's kind yeah. of in this halfway. And honestly, yeah, other than the matchlock musket, the most common weapons carried by a um, Afghan warriors literally a peshkabs and a shield. Yeah, yeah. So th these guys so are not packing the latest military hardware. Yeah, they're they're almost two hundred years behind. Like they're interesting. Peshkabs still found among the Taliban when American troops and coalition forces were encountering weapons caches and stuff and capturing the you know handling detainees and searching them. More often than not, these guys would be carrying uh, peshkabs. So, still used over there, and some of them probably are <laughs> date back to uh, the era because they're they're passed down from generation to generation, oftentimes. And they're you know I imagine they're made pretty well, uh, very very ornate. So, the British 
again, coming off of 30 years of constant victories, expected the Afghans to be kind of pushovers. Based off this technology, uh, there's there's one like direct mention from Rattray where he's talking to his buddy. Um, so you laughed during this account when I when I read it to you um, from. I think it's from um, the from Rattray himself. He's talking to his buddy, uh, Lieutenant Richard Mole from another regiment, the Bengal Artillery. He's in Afghanistan now. They've, they've taken over Kandahar kind of late fall. They're there. They occupy the city. And, you know, there's, there's some fighting. The British do pretty well, though, right? Uh, and they're trying to raise local forces. And we can imagine why. Because there's only one European regiment that has marched a pretty significant distance to get from basically modern-day Pakistan. Well, technically the 44th is from East Essex. So they've come a distance. They are an expeditionary unit, but they've come a pretty big distance at this point. They arrive in Afghanistan. They try to train up local forces. And they, they try to raise their own Afghan rangers as like an elite uh, skirmisher unit, you could call it. The 95th Rifles, the Green Berets, the Rogers Rangers of Afghanistan. And uh, <laughs> why don't you read this bit here? The So this is this is directly from one of the lithographs that we're like describing about um, describing, I guess, these, these guys and the Gisales that we're referencing and the Pishkups and the, and the small shields that these Pashtun tribesmen would have been carrying like their AK-47s of, of their time the men depicted here belong to a British regiment called the Rangers which was raised in Kohistan under the command of Lieutenant Mala Lieutenant Lieutenant <laughs> Mala this is the, the British artillery yeah. who said that he had his hands full trying to impose discipline among these wild unruly merry fellows Rattray himself left Kohistan in September 1841, but Maul, his subaltern, and European sergeants were murdered by their troops only two months later. So, where have we heard this before, right? Like, local forces not being particularly reliable, hard to control, running on their own schedule, we could say, and eventually betraying their european or imperial colonial occupying troops that they had claimed to support where have we heard that before it's very very hard to control a place like afghanistan when the people are that fiercely independent and you are going into dealing with a national identity that is equally as headstrong and, and resilient as yours. And it makes it worse when you think you're invincible going into it. Or you at least have some sort of perception that you are superior going into a conflict with a... So yes, the, the British are in Kabul. They've taken the, uh, they've taken the city. They've, t they've taken, realistically, the country. But much as we've heard before... It's much easier to take over a place than to hold it. You can win a war quite easily. It's much harder to win the peace. And ultimately, the British find themselves in a country which they can't police, can't control. 
and there's... kills their guys when um, they want to. Then they initially claim to support them. Mm-hmm. So they arm them, and then they the arms get turned on them. Yeah. Where have we heard that before? Yeah. Afghanistan is a place of very very headstrong people, right? Yes. And the British were also very very headstrong people. The only difference was the Afghans knew they weren't invincible, and the Brits at this in this era literally thought peace industry progress of Pax Britannia was going to take the world by storm. Whether the world liked it or not, it was going to happen. It was inevitable, right? It was their manifest destiny, so to speak. So you have that. You have like a recipe for disaster. That's exactly what happened. So again, they're in Kabul, right? Uh, We have another character now who is the overall commander, General William Elpenstone. Yes, this guy actually commanded the 33rd Regiment of Foot at Waterloo. The 33rd? Yes, okay. 33rd Regiment of Foot at Waterloo. Um, that's that's a Richard Sharp's regiment. Yes, uh, Richard. Uh, yeah, R- Richard. Well, it's his first regiment before he joins the 95th. Yes, yeah, yeah. Richard. We're, we're Bernard both, Cornwall. We're both big fans of the, the Sharp uh, Richard Sharp TV show that was yeah. made in the 90s and is based on, okay, of course, on, the books on, by Bernard This Cardinal. is a weird side note, but the 44th that we have mentioned now is the main European regiment that has gone in um, to, to occupy Kabul. They're actually uh, the they're the unit that, like, Sharp's unit, South Essex, is also based on. Lots of Sharp connections. Mm-hmm. Anyways. But then, so, General William Elphinstone, uh, spoiler alert, survived Napoleon, but yeah, would not that. survive Afghanistan. This guy had a pretty illustrious battle record too, right? He served at, uh, again, Waterloo, 100 Days Campaign, which, I mean, as, as far as famous battles in history go, like that was the battle to be at. And you, you can just imagine actually being a contemporary of that battle present uh, as an officer. Like that meant something. Absolutely. Maybe not as like a private soldier unless you're like a... I think even a private soldier, man, like if you told the guy you were at Waterloo, you'd probably get a lot of drink spot for you. Yeah, at the very least, right? Yeah. Like like Waterloo veterans were appreciated because they they fought the the, the ultimate battle that meant everything to the future of Europe. Europe held in the balance. Massive battle. Clash of many nations, right? Because it wasn't just Britain and France. It was Prussia. It was the Netherlands. It was all the German states, like the the Brunswickers, right? Hanover, all these little German states, like the Poles on on the side of the French, uh, when they uh, probably some Austrians, I would imagine, on the side of the French. Like all of Europe was there, except with exception of like maybe the Russians, right? Oh yeah, and they'd already been quite quite seriously involved earlier. So exactly. Yeah. So. This is a battle of nations, and this guy was there, and he he was on the winning side. And he was probably one of these guys that that thought the place, um, or or thought of the British army as one that was now undefe- undefeatable. However, by the time of uh, the Anglo-Afghan War, when he goes, and this is thirty years later, he's now a pretty old man, not as tactically sound. This becomes a recurring theme in the kind of mid-Victorian British army until the Childers reforms and basically the the removal of uh, 
sold commit like the changing of the officer system in general and the changing of the perceptions of individual soldiers from this like kind of scum of the earth thing to um and and scum of the earth is a quote actually by the duke of wellington the overall commander of the british troops at waterloo this famous battle that the british are involved in to the victorian heroes you know flashman comes to mind right so lots of uh lots of changes are happening but they're happening very slowly at this point and this is like this is like an old guard kind of guy you know he's like he's already won his wars and stuff but he finds afghanistan this not exactly india the local leaders are not exactly loyal because again as was we as you just you read earlier like they get stabbed in the like they're there are mutinies and stuff and it gets quite nasty and the guy that they do have to install because whenever you exercise some imperial power play you can't just annex nations directly especially if they're very very headstrong like afghanistan you have to generally install some sort of a local at least puppet leader the guy they installed shah shuja is uh well he's interesting you you did a bit of research on this guy this guy was extremely unpopular among the majority of the Afghan people. Uh, he was known for wanton cruelty and flying into great rages. He had a bunch of prisoners of war beheaded at one point, an act which really actually sort of, I think, sickened Mr. Elpenstone, if I, I remember reading. Was he, did he observe it? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. And British okay. troops actually were like, why are we, like, we're supposed to be the guardians of, like, anglo-saxon liberty and like you know yeah bring the the beliefs of this superior civilization which is how they thought to the world and then they're like and our allies here are chopping off people's heads and torturing people and doing all kinds of things that the british the average sort of british officer found quite you know ungentlemanly yes so he was still british back though at the end of the day but he just he was not exactly leadership material. Not only was he, he is he a collaborator with a foreign entity that wasn't Afghan, that wasn't Pashtun, that might wasn't not, Muslim. That wasn't wait, was he? Yeah, sorry, yeah, he's a collaborator with a non-Muslim authority. That's that's that is a factor, right? Because Church Church of England, Britannia, is not Muslim. It's the furthest thing from it not Pashtun at all they don't even look the damn same they're wearing completely different uniforms they're wearing like red coats radically different than the colorful ornate garb of the local Afghan Pashtun warriors uh, Shah Suja is you know in, in every possible way like the worst person for the job and perceived in the worst possible way by Afghans across the country, and it, they devolve into a almost like a um, a revolution within a rev within a war, if you want to call it that. What do you? What do you? What was your take on it? Well, my take is basically that the, I mean, the British kind of set up this puppet state, mm -hmm. and and much like where. You know, again, tell me if this sounds familiar in more than one war in Afghanistan later. 
They could control the cities, but they couldn't control the countryside. Yep. And then there's that old saying, right? The the, the British or the Americans have all the clocks and... And? I actually don't know this. You don't know this one? I, I've heard of it before. The Afghans have all the, the time. time. Yeah, okay, exactly. Yeah, how have you never heard that one? Well, you know... you. You have heard it. You just don't. No, I don't remember. Remember, okay. but that is that's just a good saying. That's that's a well, very yeah, good. That's, that's a very good saying with any yeah. sort of guerrilla yeah. war. But this actually. is exactly what happened, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the British had all the clocks, the Afghans had all the time. Yeah. And a, a massive revolt basically ensued, and the British recognized now that, damn, we might actually be outnumbered and encircled, and this this could be a disaster. You know, we're in the business of winning. Not losing. So we'll, we'll you know, in his kind of um, semi-senile state, Elpenstone decides, I think he's in his late 50s at this point. He's like, okay, let's... Well, he's not He's not senile, but he's not... Uh, he's um, you, you don't get senility in your 50s. Sorry, <laughs> I'm thinking of another imperial leader who is senile right now that also screwed up in Afghanistan. Sorry, I'm... Th- just just these old old white guys that don't make good decisions in Afghanistan. I don't know. Sorry, it's just something. Yeah. Something came to my head. Sorry. He's he's older. He's old guard, right? There's another old guard guy that failed in Afghanistan. But anyways, he's an old guard guy. He's like, I'm not going to be the first British uh, commander, you know, of expeditionary forces to fail, especially with an with a, a unit with an illustrious battle record like the 44th. All right. I'm not going to. This unit is not going to be the one to fail, um, and get annihilated or whatever. Like we're 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 getting the heck out of here. We're going to regroup. Maybe we'll come back with a bigger force, or we'll exercise our influence in uh, Persia or something. Or we'll do something else. We'll do something else. Mm-hmm. This ain't this ain't working for us. And they much like the Americans in Somalia, they decided yeah, yeah. To, you know just, yeah they they wanted know, to let's pull out find cut, cut their day. losses, get out of there. But they do it in the middle of winter. At this point trying to traverse the Khyber Pass back into Pakistan. It's a very, very almost claustrophobic environment of mountains and hills. It's called the Khyber Pass for a reason. You have to pass through it. And along the way, the various native regiments from East the East India Company that have been raised to follow them, um, officered by Europeans, manned by Indian troops, and the 44th, which is a wholly uh, European regiment of, you know, native people, native to the British Isles, they are whittled down along this retreat to Kabul. And among among them is, uh, in on the, with the Indian regiments, is, is James Rattray, right? Going back with the uh, 2nd Grenadiers. He and his men, like, just, he barely makes it out. Right, it's it's a really nasty situation, and that's why his uh, his lithographs and stuff, and his depictions of the Afghan soldiers of the time are probably some of the best. And he also depicts kind of like you know other stuff. There's like there's women. We we had a we had a bit of a laugh with one of the lithographic depictions. So it was like it's like two Afghan women, and the picture is like one woman who's probably someone of more wealth and substance. She's wearing a lot of jewels. Uh, she's wearing I think she had something she had something almost like a crown on her head mm-hmm. just a normal woman just, but just a, a bit upper... like a sorry sort of something yeah yeah, something yeah. That she's got a hijab on though she's got a hijab actually i don't think she i think she Maybe had not. uncovered hair 
Yeah, I'm I'm ninety percent okay. sure. She had some sort of she had some sort of ethnic headdress, and uh, she's clearly some a woman of substance. And then behind her, it looked like a tent. And then we, <laughs> you know, we this is this is our this is our sorry Eurocentric mindset. We're like, why is there a tent behind her? Where's the second woman? We realize like, oh, that's a niqab. That's a woman in a in a full niqab. That's not even a. It's the it one like, that's yeah, yeah. I I don't know the name of it, but no, it's, it's the niqab. one. Where there's not even the eyes showing. There's yeah. just like a... Yeah. That's still... That's a kneecap still. That's still a kneecap. It's a full body. It's a kneecap. Anyways, right. whatever. It looked like a tent. It was like a white tent. And we're like, what the heck is that? Oh, uh, no. It was a, it was a lady. <laughs> Anyways, I digress. Really cool lithographic depictions. If you haven't like looked them up, they're, uh, they're all at publicly accessible because Rattray died in 1854. So it's all public domain. You can find these... Um, they're beautiful. They're beautiful, like paintings that he did, basically. Um, but anyways, he like he depicts these warriors that uh, that they fought, and despite the kit they had, they they used it very effectively against the British. At this time, the British were armed with the Brown Best musket, which was the same weapon they had used at Waterloo. Um, in eighteen thirty nine, they had converted a lot of these muskets to percussion. Uh, percussion caps so rather than having to fiddle with a flint as you and i have done before because we've shot both flint locks and percussions in our our lives lifetimes and recently we did uh, we had the, we're that we got really lucky and had the opportunity to shoot both like on the same day and I shoot a cannon too so we we know a, a little day. bit about black powder now having um having manned cannon crews and stuff uh but um Percussion allows you to shoot a little faster, right? And that basically makes this firearm, like, as far as I'm concerned, like five generations ahead of the matchlocks that the Afghans had. But you can just see in the depictions that Red Trade does, like these guys were like they were tough dudes, right? And they're ballsy. They're they're in they're dressed in like bright blue and you know the Khyber Pass, and everyone can see you. Or like bright yellow or bright red or whatever, right? Very bright colors, um, very flashy. You'll see in the in the in the depictions as well. The Afghan or the Pashtun warriors specifically have putties, which is a something that the British don't have at this time, but they later adopt by the Boer War for sure. Like we see, we see putties widely used, and that's just those are just leg wraps that wrap all the way from the like i guess the bottom of your ankle to the bottom of your knee and these putties are um something that the british don't have and it actually kind of sucks for them that they don't have them because in the kyber pass uh, you you can just imagine these guys wearing relatively low boots with maybe spats or something to kind of protect against rocks getting into their boots and stuff in the middle of winter, mind you. Snow, so, yeah. Yeah, so like they, they don't have a lot of insulation in their footwear. They've got their socks maybe, but you know, you and I have, we live in Canada and we've had to deal with snow our entire lives. Um, Including in our boots. Yeah, and we don't, when winter rolls around, you change your footwear, right? And these troops were a late fall campaigning army not a winter campaigning army and um they they basically started to freeze to death and get whittled away as they 
tried to do this orderly withdrawal, it slowly became this like chaotic panic to rush to the borders of British India and, and, and I think it was the town of uh, Hijat that they wanted, or was it, no, sorry, Jalalabad. Yes, it was Jalalabad. Yeah, so they're trying to reach to Jalalabad, and, which was under British control, safely under British control, and with them were civilian followers, so sutlers, people that were uh, private individuals that supplied the army, because the army logistics were nowhere even close to what they were in the Napoleonic Wars, especially in a far-flung place like British India and Afghanistan. There were wives, there were children, there, like, the families of the soldiers would actually co- accompany a lot of them on campaign. So it's not only military personnel that are part of this withdrawal, it's like their families and stuff. And you can just imagine the the absolute pandemonium of like seeing your children freeze to death or get shot by or hacked to pieces by Pashtun warriors, your wife getting carried off, and you trying to fight this quote-unquote orderly withdrawal. And your supplies are being whittled away. These guys are dressed for the weather. They're not afraid of you, clearly, as you look at the painting, you look at the painting again, like, the two guys in the painting that were looking at the rangers, that, again, they, they basically turn on the British later, um, they're tough looking dudes. Yeah, it, it, they look massive. They look like Herculean. And that, like, this guy comes from Europe, right? He's a European man going to a place where he, sh- you know, we would expect people to be like, especially a European man in the 19th, mid 19th century, you should be like, oh, everyone else is inferior to the great Anglo Saxon race. He's drawing these guys like they're Hercules, right? These, these guys are huge. They're massive men. They're clearly like they've got fire in their eyes. There's clearly some respect by yeah, the artists there. There's clearly some respect, and these are the same dudes that, like, within months of this depiction, like they're fighting. They're 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 fighting the British, right? Maybe even like weeks. I we're not. I don't know exactly when the because it was all released as these paintings were all released as like a cycle. Um, We'll probably have to post these painting, like all of these individual paintings that we talk about, because they're very good primary sources. But we'll have to post them, like on the. Uh, we'll put them on uh, the Instagram. We'll put no, no. We'll put them on the actual website so people can see them, because we can, like under the, the you know where the, the descriptions are on the podcast. So yeah, we'll yeah, actually, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll post them there. We'll put some. So you guys yeah. know what we'll talk about. We'll, we'll say this is. We'll say this one's photo one. Yes. Yes, because we've been, we keep we keep talking about it because it's really cool. Like when you look at it, and and honestly. If you were to take the Jazeel out of the guy's hand and give him, put him an AK, it would be like, was this painted for like today? Was this painted for like 2020? Because it looks like a guy in the Taliban, right? Yeah. It's the same people. and they're Yeah, change a little bit of the clothes and the weapons and it's the same it's people. It's the same people and there's the same fire in their eyes that uh, <laughs> you're not going to defeat in 20 years, much less... Almost 200. Almost 200. So... Yeah, Rattray's part of this retreat. He actually makes it out um, with the second Grenadiers, but the, the Indians suffer hard. The, the native Indian regiments are they're like cut to pieces, and they they barely make it out. Because again, you're dragging along families and and camp followers and like sutlers. I guess the best equivalent of sutlers today would be like private military contractors that supply stuff. So um, like supply people basically, and like clerks and. Stuff, people issuing or selling wool socks and that kind of stuff but they're like following along and 
food's probably getting like all eaten up you're freezing to death you're running out of clothes and you're fighting your whole way back through unforgiving terrain in the middle of winter in like mountains it's not a good time the 44th have it rough right the 44th have it uh uh, p particularly rough and and um at eventually like they just because of the way that this this withdrawal becomes so chaotic over time with people dragging their families and stuff the 44th gets whittled down to just like a handful of men this this proud regiment of hundreds of men red coats marching into kabul triumphantly only months before is a shell of itself they are running low on supplies low on ammunition they're freezing to death their families have been killed or captured and sold into like slavery well, i don't know I, 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 I didn't know that the afghan did the afghans take prisoners i didn't think they did like yeah any. they did they did take uh they did take so some just willingly surrendered, if you will. I believe if you willingly surrendered, they did take... Like, the, the women and children, from what I understand, they did take some civilian prisoners. Uh, but at a place called Gandamark is the real... The no-prisoner scenario I think you're thinking of, right? There is a pretty famous contemporary painting by William Barnes Woland... Uh, 1898 so this is 40 years i want to say 40 years after the conflict right he's 41 so it's 48 so 40 exactly 46 or 47 years so there might still be some veterans alive and there's definitely some people that at least talk to uh, a first-hand account like people like, like parents or whatever that were present during the withdrawal and knew the conditions um there are almost a hundred percent like still artifacts from the battle like uniforms that had survived stuff like that right there was still material history to engage with so it's pretty it's not a you know right after the fact kind of painting but there is still a like deep connection to the event itself at gandamark uh, and this event was basically the 44th getting encircled and annihilated by these local forces the 44th Regiment at Ganimark made a, well, rather heroic last stand, singing God Save the Queen as they were encircled, down to a small group of them, firing to the last round and fighting to the last man. And uh, this, this painting that uh, we're looking at now, so this will be painting number two, photo number two or whatever. I think we'll use this as the main image for the yeah so this will be this will be this will have been the main image for the podcast i might i might like superimpose some sort of like withdrawal thing on the other side you know that'd be okay. kind of cool. yeah that that'd be so with we'll, the, heli the helicopter with the helicopter, helicopter yeah, yeah yeah well we'll talk about the helicopter in, in a second and, and a certain mule but anyways yeah. um at ganamark they're annihilated like to a man now some survivors from the 44th do exist right because some of them are captured before this but at Gandamark, like the surviving soldiers that had made it up to this point, actually not too far from Jalal, like they came pretty damn close. Um, wiped out. Wiped out. A few British cavalrymen actually are able to break out of this. I think they came within like, again, they came in within miles of Jalalabad and they're ambushed again and they're wiped out. Mm -hmm. Well, one man survives that 
doesn't yeah, doesn't th- yeah throughout all this carnage like only one guy makes it out and uh, so uh, just to, just to step back so again we, we do have there is one survivor and that's how we know a lot of uh, the the sequence of events that that happens with these guys getting surrounded like slowly whittled and then eventually surrounded um and annihilated but there there is a guy that survives to tell the story but just to just to reference the painting that hopefully maybe you're looking at as well um the the guys as you can see in the painting right that that we're looking at they're clearly fighting in a winter campaign <laughs> they're not in the triumphant uh, red coats anymore so a lot of the uh, contemporary depictions show them when they march into Kabul they are wearing red coats and then like by this point they're like in all manner of dress whatever jacket and hat they can scratch ragtag they're very ragtag there they are with their brown best percussions right um and these and this is like the really this this battle was kind of the last hurrah of uh the brown best so just a quick tangent 1839 the brown best is converted as i mentioned earlier from um flintlock to percussion right so you can fire it a little faster but that same year of this battle as a lot of these muskets are being converted over and i don't even know if they had converted all of them at this point there might have very well been flintlocks at this battle um but it was the brown best right they're going to make that they're going to modernize the brown bess and all of a sudden there's just this inexplicable fire at the tower of london in 1841 when they're converting all these muskets from flintlock to percussion and they lose a like boatloads of brown bess muskets doesn't that sound familiar leaving afghanistan and losing a lot of your crap well th- this they at least lost at home <laughs> yeah at least yeah. they lost the stuff at home so there again mark the 44th this this regiment that had fought at preston pans at brandywine bridge at waterloo at Talavera, uh, during the peninsula war like this this famous regiment right just gone yeah did no longer existed and just to really drive the point home guys um general general william elpenstone Elpenstone, yeah general william elpenstone uh is buried somewhere in afghanistan on mark grave the commander of this entire force yeah we still i don't i think they know where his grave is probably like roughly but it's unmarked yeah it is somewhere in the hills of afghanistan yeah there was um there was a new york times article and i I don't like the New York Times for many reasons, and it's the unfortunately the article is behind a paywall. But according to them, as of 2010, the hills in Ganemark, where a lot of the locals still have some sort of, I guess, uh, a folk folklore level understanding of the battle, because a lot of their ancestors had fought on the Afghan side, obviously, and had ambushed the British. Apparently, at Ganemark, which unfortunately we can't, you know, we can't, um, we can't go find out for ourselves because we can't go to afghanistan anymore but as of like 2010 there well, were we still could. it probably wouldn't be a good idea well, but... you, could, you could go all lord miles i'm not, not you you do that i'm i'll stay right here but the hills at ganamark are still as of the 20 like in the into the 2010s still littered with bones of unidentified british soldiers that had died there unburied 
littered with bones and artifacts, perhaps rotted muskets here and there, bits of buttons, torn fabric uniforms, shattered shackles, um, you name it, right? They're still there. The 44th really never left. Now, of course, the regiment was reformed and has a history after the first Anglo-Afghan War, but that to see a European regiment, or just to, just to imagine, if you will, being a a Britisher, a proud Britisher, and you you know you were a young man during Waterloo, and you remember like the the glorious triumph of the British Empire, commanding the seas and the land, and the sun never setting. The invincible redcoats that had defeated the old guard of Napoleon. This, the immortals, if you will, decimated to the man, to a man by literally one man decimated. Yeah, literally, literally to, one to, man. to a man decimated by savages with matchlocks and, and machetes and, and machetes. You've outfitted these guys with the best equipment, the best training you can provide. You've drilled them extensively. They have fought in an expeditionary capacity for their entire existence as a regiment. And in one day, they're gone. Wiped off the face of the earth. And in fact, their bones and their bodies are never even recovered. And here we are, 160-odd years later, right? Or not 160, 180-odd years later, the bones are still there. You know that's that would that that is a shock. You can imagine as well being a Indian soldier as part of a individual cog in this big East India Company machine, part of this system of loose loosey goosey control right over india and one of these like semi-autonomous armies and a semi-autonomous regiment why do you serve the british they are not like rajput they're not like from gujarat they're not from bengal they are from cornwall or london right or edinburgh like they're they're, they're not they're not you they don't have they don't respect your they might tacitly respect your local faith but you know they snicker behind your back when you refuse to eat beef when you pray five times a day they 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 probably like it's it's quite obvious like you are an inferior to them right in in this relationship you're not exactly an equal but you serve them because they are they are the force they are the empire right they're the redcoats the ones that defeated napoleon and in fact, you know, well, a lot of people don't know this, um, and it wasn't the collective memory of Indians in the uh, early 19th century for sure. The Duke of Wellington fought in India, the Battle of Versailles, right? He defeated, like, a massive Indian army there before he ever went to the peninsula. He defeated, um, actually, a, a, you know, this is kind of a total weird tangent. He defeated, like, a German-led uh indian army which is crazy to think about right well and there were french like in india but yeah. over the 17 and i guess the very early yeah. 1800s the british kicked them out yeah so it, it was in the collective memory of the indians that like 
the Brits are willing to fight everywhere and they're willing to win everywhere. They'll do, they'll do whatever it takes. And like, we, we want to be part of the winning team because they're like invincible. As far as we're concerned, they're invincible. At Asai, the Indian army had sent their the war elephants, which were like the, the, as for, you know, antiquity and maybe the early medieval period. And pro- probably up until that period in India, I guess, like the dominant, like the scariest thing you could throw at somebody, right? Like the nuclear bomb. And the British, like, cut them to pieces. They're like, okay, that's fine. We'll stand over here. You can get those elephants to run on us as quick as you can. But in mass volley fire, you know, and we, we're going to, we're going to, we're not scared of elephants. Sorry. You have massive charging pachyderms, but we have rifles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, muskets. They're muskets, not rifled. Yeah. They're not quite rifled yet for the most part. Um, yeah. I guess that's another thing. These aren't rifled muskets quite yet. We have boomsticks. Yeah, to be boom fair, sticks. the Indians did have guns and cannons too. So, yes. But they did not have the disciplined like infantry squares of the British, the which line. could just, just fire. The, just, the, just the tactics. Fire and the, like yeah, line fire, after yeah. line. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they didn't have that level of drill, I guess, quite yet uh, mastered. And there was a lot of very hybrid, right? And just the same way the Afghans were fought a bit of a hybrid war where they had like some like black powder technology but some of it was very very old school right and they were definitely not drilled in a conventional european style the indians had a collective memory of this and definitely didn't want to piss about with the british but hear about Gannamark, the legendary 44 that had strode through here in the red coats only you know months earlier doesn't exist anymore right these guys that are less organized than these indian troops are right that are less well armed because the indian troops were uh, armed on par with the the uh, army in mainland britain at this point right they were armed with the latest tech they were given the brown best musket they were given brunswick rifles which was the um successor to the baker rifle like at the it was like the pinnacle of like british rifle musket technology at this point it wasn't a very good rifle <laughs> that's neither here nor there but it was like as far as they're concerned it was like the pinnacle of technology it's like the newest rifle the indians got them right away right they're in they're issuing Bru- brunswick's and like, yeah take all this like the best gear and you'll see a lot of these native indian regiments they're in red coats and they're like damn what does this red coat really mean right like why am i working for these guys if they're not actually this is a great empire up until gandamark it meant we're part of the winning team yeah but then after and and it's like what does it mean and then you know that that little voice in the back of your head that this guy is always going to be snickering what you know it's just the perception that they're always well he's always going to be an alien he's always going to be an alien yeah yeah he's always going to be an alien he's always himself a superior who views you yeah Yeah, as as an inferior um and he has already started to change your customs and stuff because he's like oh that's that's unchristian you can't was it sahiri or sati sati Sati, where the where the wife uh, has to jump into the fire yeah now to uh, be to be fair that was probably one some indians were more than willing to see go but yes yeah but it's just like they're they're starting to change your culture it's for better or worse right Mm -hmm. they're starting to change your culture and you're like okay but they're no longer the winning team and they don't this this like almost illusion of strict strangling control is, is shattered because 
well shattered with the 44th at Gandamark. Anyways, uh, it it's um that's what that painting reflects that moment. Like it's just it's like the first time the British Empire was really humbled as and, we know it. And it should be noted that not too long after this, about maybe about fifteen, sixteen years after Gandamark, uh, the Indians, well, a lot of them uh, sort of try and. Uh, give their own hand at shattering the british empire yeah that doesn't go nearly as successfully but but it is it just it just goes to reflect because again as you mentioned there's the the indian mutiny 1857 right that's the chaos part of things yeah it does take it doesn't happen immediately it doesn't happen overnight right and um you know that's something we can i guess that's like a a major modern takeaway we can take away from the situation like anamark where again it was afghanistan and a major defeat just like we experienced, uh, we can take away the fact that it's not going to happen overnight. The Taliban is not going to now, like, take over Uzbekistan. <laughs> no. I'll just spat all over the screen thinking about that. Because that, that'd be hilarious, but it'd be awful, but hilarious and, like, really confusing. But that, that won't happen. That's just not... I, I could be wrong, right? Again, we're recording this in, like august 2021 so if you're listening and like tomorrow before the episode's even up it could be like the the pack the taliban take over iran like it could be yeah like whatever right we we could be totally wrong but chances are these this chaos phase as far as like strasso generational theory goes like it it'll take a little bit to 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 really ramp up to that point and I, i don't know if we're at that point quite yet as far as you know international politics and, and the situation in the middle east goes but it takes a little bit and it, it manifests itself in kind of different ways right in, in ways that maybe you wouldn't even really expect because in india that level of influence or sorry in india the level of influence that the east india company had on the indian subcontinent was very established had been there for a century none of us are a century old maybe you're 100 years old and you're listening to this like good on you for being a 100 years old right that's very cool but most of us listening us two talking we're not 100 years old we probably won't live 100 years but for a century they had more or less started to really really control the indian subcontinent the east india company had at least tacit control over some parts anyways but I don't think in their in their wildest dreams would they imagine that these guys that they arm and they support and they train for over a century and they keep them prime for battle, whether it be wars and campaigns against the Afghans, against the Persians, against the Burmese, against the Sikhs in Punjab, against the, uh, uh, the, the Gurkhas in Nepal, right, which they all fight during the Victorian era. Never in their, like, wildest dreams could they imagine they're going to turn their guns on us and that's exactly what happened in 1857 now again those that know their history a little bit know that there's it's it's been debated but technically when the british moved over to the 1853 musket um the indians um the indians were either hindu or muslim and they were told that the cartridges were packed like made with some sort of animal grease and in order both to both pork and beef yeah, so and, making them 
non-kosher to both so, okay, religions. So just to, just to back up one step here, the British musketry drills had them biting this cartridge. So you had to actually put it into their mouth. And again, as you said, not not kosher, not not halal. What's what's the word in what's for I have Hindi, no idea Hindi's? what the word in Hindi is. Okay, so whatever, it's just unclean. It's... Unclean, yeah. It's as far as their theological views were concerned, and these were pretty religious people for the most part. Like this was like completely against their religion. This is completely abhorrent to their culture. And the army telling them to do this was no longer invincible, right? And again, this is like a hugely debated po- topic as to actually the influence of that and what the influence of the Anglo-Afghan War, uh, the first one was, on this eventual revolt, but the, the Indians' revolt against the British, and it's a it's a very, very gnarly war that we'll get into one day, perhaps. Yes. All kinds of cool stories from there. But, um, yeah, we, we may very well be in our own 10-year cycle of chaos, and uh, who the heck knows where it's going to go, but it won't happen overnight. And the, the best thing we can do, I guess, to, to mitigate it is kind of think outside the box. And I hope our... <laughs> when I say I hope politicians do things, they tend not to. But I hope statesmen will, will analyze... Well, and, and who knows where this chaos is going to go. Yeah, exactly. So I, I hope that they're going to watch for these weird periphery things. Because, like, the I think the, um, the British in the 1840s were more concerned about like the irish because you know the revolutions of 1848 happened just like right after this six years after this in mainland europe and they think holy crap like the the proletariat and like these pseudo marxists are gonna take over europe and stuff and it's gonna be you know we're kind of domestically like we're in this kind of same situation Right, we're like uh, we're like we're thinking that there's going to be all kinds of crazy political strife, um, and there's going to be political violence locally, and then all of a sudden, like the actual major conflict erupts, like somewhere where they're not paying attention. That's India, uh, and again, we're we'll, we'll get into the Indian mutiny one day. But like a lot of the guys, when the Indian mutiny kicks off, are totally clueless and like what do you mean they're shooting at us and they have to like blow up their ammo what do you mean new delhi's on fire (laughs) that's impossible like that's like the reaction called new delhi then it had to no it's just delhi it's just delhi i think it it would have just been delhi so um yeah like it it was crazy it was a crazy situation and it took the regular british army having to like intervene and assist like east like the few east india company forces and native regiments that remain loyal right uh to to put this thing down and it it would it span it was like all over the country and it was absolutely crazy it created like a refugee situation in nepal like it was it was quite the damn war right it was it was brutal it was absolutely brutal um so because of that like it it was something that happened kind of in the in the periphery you know and i think that that's what we should pay attention to we should pay attention to maybe the Uzbekistan's of the world yeah. and what the hell is going to happen there yeah. right what are what are what are people seeing of the west um well and as yeah. as i was saying with the who knows where the chaos will lead now i mean the you know people forget the like the british empire arguably got stronger after the indian mutiny it wasn't yeah. all downhill it was they had a sort of 
a valley, but then they grew again to a peak. So who knows? Maybe that will happen with a country like the United States. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or, or, you know, the sort of NATO Western bloc. M- maybe they will. So a- after. Maybe this yeah, China being the yeah. new top dog is a temporary thing. Who knows? And and after the Indian. So right before the Indian mutiny, is, as well as like the, the Crimean War, which is a technically a British victory, but it was a disaster because they lose so many men for stupid reasons, which we'll, we'll get into one day again. Things aren't well. In 1856 to 1859-ish is not a good period for the British Empire. They, they're they not doing well. And then all of a sudden, things start picking up for them. Because a lot of the decisions they decide to make during that period, including reforming their army, uh, reforming like the, 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 the society, right? There was, a, there was almost like a reformation in the society in that later Victorian era in terms of the perception of soldiers, in terms of the perception of the military, in terms of the perception of the working class. Um, some of the greatest works of English literature come out of, like, this period, right? Uh, some of, the, like, the best academics, a lot of names you've probably heard of, um, <laughs> scientific theories, right? Like, like Darwin, well, he's like, what is he, 1880s, 1870s, 1880s? Yeah. So, yeah. This, that, that was the yeah, so like, voyage of the, yeah, the Dar- what it, voyage of whatever his ship yeah, was called. Was Darwin's, the Darwin's boat. Darwin's boat. Darwin's you can tell boat. We're, we're very scientifically literate. Yeah, we're very big scientific historians. Yeah. yeah. So, Darwin, Oscar Wilde. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle. Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, a lot of the, Rudyard Kipling. Yes. Uh, what is it? Uh, Pride and Prejudice. And actually, no, it sounds Napoleonic. It's older. The Austin sisters are a little older. Yeah, they're, they're Napoleonic. But yes, it is but sort of a golden. It is a. It's a. It's like a renaissance of English culture. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, late Victorian. Yeah. Late Victorian period. The sort of from the 1860s on, Britain and, is once again like it was yeah. sort of in the sort yeah. of 1820s, 1830s, the undisputed master of the world. And I think that's what public popular memory tends to regard the Victorian era as. Is that is that part of it? Not the chaotic nasty bad decision making getting units annihilated in afghanistan part right which is where we are now and it took it took people to kind of almost make fun of their own culture and kind of be more introspective think outside the box look at those peripheries there, a lot of a lot of satire coming around this period um and the culture really changed in the country culture really changed and britain went through a debacle like this again with the second boer war exactly and then it jumped back again after that and then it took it took literally two world wars to end the british empire for good they kept jumping back now will america be as resilient i guess is the the million dollar question because there's another we won't go too much into this war because it's this isn't what our podcast is about and we but uh you know, there's another great power that went into Afghanistan with the attempt, with the sort of mm-hmm. belief that they'd kick ass and take maims, and their empire fell apart completely after they pulled out. And we're speaking, of course, of the <clears throat> Soviets. Of, yeah, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, which was yeah. not the most powerful country in the world, but certainly number two through most of the 20th century. Yeah, and they, they didn't do well either. So we'll, we'll talk about that war. There's lots of wars in Afghanistan. We can go back to antiquity. Uh, by the way, if you haven't noticed already, we did change our logo as of this podcast, the, record, the, the, the release of this podcast, and you'll you'll see um, perhaps some of the empires that tried to go to Afghanistan and uh, 
Yeah. Didn't do so well. I'll be honest. Uh, yeah, although I don't we'll, think we'll, we'll I don't about... think medieval knights went to Afghanistan, but yeah, we'll talk about that at the end. Anyways, this is the men among men stories, and I guess uh, I this is kind of a weird podcast for us because we're talking about a I guess relevant political topic. We did it before with the history thing, but again, it's it's men among men stories, and there is a crazy story out of this, and I I I. I don't want to end this podcast without talking about this guy, and that's the story of William Bryden. Absolutely. So he's there again in Mark, this guy. And he's the he's the lone survivor. He's not a member of the forty fourth, he's an army surgeon. Right? He's a he's a Doctor Doctor Bryden as well. Dr. William Bryden. And um he he ends up he's ordered like you have to break out with the cavalry. Like, again I mentioned those few cavalrymen that he breaks out with and uh he go he he actually like gets out of there and he like kind of witnesses the 44th getting chopped up and he's like holy crap and he's on this like the world's smallest horse he's he's, he's described as a pony right so it could have been like a mule even i'm not i'm not totally sure who who the heck really knows what breed this horse was i don't think it had a name he just found this small horse i could like barely carry him right and he's like riding through the mountains of Afghanistan. I think he's got a sword. As he as he as he as he like makes his way out, and uh, it's winter. He's freezing to death, and it's it's not good. And there's a, there's a really good uh, book that we need to freaking get our hands on because it looks wicked. Um, but it's called The Return of the King, right? Yes. And it's about this first Anglo-Afghan war in the in the course of events. And we you know we did a good deal of research on this uh, topic before getting into it but it this is a book that we probably will have to read. maybe we'll cover one day but from this book which was done what was the name of the author do you remember uh william doll my doll the, oh hell william. Uh, his last doll maripple or something and <laughs> just uh... okay, to the author of the return, <laughs> return of the king not the lord of the rings one but the, the the return of the king book that was published recently we apologize for screwing up your name we will cover your book eventually. It's this cool book. But he actually went to Afghanistan. He went to Gannamark. He went to these places where these battles happened. He was at the site of the, the last stand, and he talked to the locals who still remembered, like, well, what what did they remember? Did you, did you, did we get that? Do we have that word, quote for quote? No, we don't. It's in the, it's in a Daily Mail article where he's just talking, he's recounting, like, an interview with one of the locals. What did they say? They're like, they said something where, like, just, yeah. like, they came in and tried to impose upon us, so we we killed all the blankety blank. Like it's some, yeah, we quote, it's yeah. some swear or slur. Yeah, it doesn't quite translate to English, but they said, yeah, we killed all the. I, I think the closest English equivalent is bastards. <laughs> sure, let's use that. Yeah. Let's use that. That's probably the cleanest word we can. We use. killed all the bastards. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, they killed all the blank blanks, and um, it was probably a racial pejorative. We were really trying. We gotta actually ask an Afghan if we can find the actual word they used. Yeah. Someone, like speaks Pashto. It's probably something racial. But anyways, uh, the locals still remember the battle and stuff. He did a lot of that. That's the, probably the in, most interesting part of the research is that almost anthropological look at it. Like how does how has that story been told through generations and stuff? And then linking that with the European accounts uh, from guys like William Bryden. And Bryden had a hell of a story. So again, he breaks out, and a lot of like what the information we got it was like peripheries of, of this book, but. Brighton gets out, um, 
at one point he's actually uh, pulled off a horse, right? He's pulled off his like little crappy horse. No offense to the horse. The horse is actually the real hero in this story. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But he gets pulled off his horse at one point as he's ambushed and he's trying to ride out with the cavalrymen. He gets separated from them. And the guy had a uh, Blackwoods magazine in his forage cap, which is his hat. And uh, Blackwoods, just to give a little bit of context, and I'll, well, yeah, I'll let you read it in a sec because you can read his exact. You have, we have his his, his exact. <clears throat> we have his exact words here, and um, we will read it in a sec. But just to give some context, Blackwoods magazine is like Harper's Weekly or whatever, or like Reader's Digests. That'd be the modern equivalent. And Harper's Weekly still a thing, right? I think they still publish. I think so. Yes. They yeah, all reads Harper's Weekly. No offense if you do, but <laughs> it's like a it's like a famous magazine, Blackwoods magazine. And he had one in his hat, but he was, it was so cold that the damn thing froze, and created this like he had like folded it, like, like rolled it up and put it in his hat because you know where the hell else do you put a civilian magazine? And he's wearing a pretty hefty leather forage cap. It's a military style, almost like a smaller version of a shackle hat, which you saw during the Napoleonic Wars. So it's not quite a super tall hat, but it's pretty hefty, and it's got this like book inside it. And a dude pulls him off his horse and tries to cut his head open. The confusion was terrible. I was pulled off my horse and knocked down by a blow on the head from an Afghan knife, which must have killed me had I not placed a portion of Blackwood's magazine in my forage cap. As it was, a piece of bone was cut from my skull. Seeing a second blow coming, I met it with the edge of my sword, and I suppose cut off some of my assailant's fingers. He bolted one way, and I the other, minus my cap. Those who had been with me I never saw again. I rejoined our troops and scrambled over the barricade. Yeah, so those were, that was I think that was the ambush of the cavalrymen that he had escaped with. Um, about maybe like 15 dudes were... We'll never know for sure because his memory, I'm sure, is quite hazy at this point. He After being just... hit in the head with a peshka, yeah. peshka. He, he calls it a he calls it an Afghan knife, and we did some like research on like what that word would have actually meant. And did they realistically, it would have been a full length peshkas. But as far as he's concerned, that's not a British style rapier, or sorry, not a rapier. What the sword they saber. would have been a saber. Yeah. It's not a cavalry saber that he would have been familiar with. It would have looked like a knife to him. But straight, this is a machete. Yeah, this is like. This is some hefty that just almost split his skull open, but luckily he had a relatively hefty hat and like a solid block of paper <laughs> that had protected him. He's probably at least a little bit concussed at this point. He slashes at the guy, cuts off some of his fingers, he reckons. Buddy, with a few missing fingers, decides maybe I'm not going to tussle with this uh, surgeon anymore. I'm going to leave. He pisses off and... Brighton pisses off in the other direction. But unfortunately, the, the cavalrymen that that, that are with him, that have broken out from Ganemark, are slaughtered to a man. Every single one of them. Probably horses killed. Like, not a good time. And Brighton is is alone now. And uh, as he rides the Kuiper Pass, as an individual, the lone survivor of this action at Ganemark, he is surrounded once again. I proceeded alone. Then I saw about twenty men picking up large stones. With difficulty I put my pony into a gallop, and taking the bridle in my mouth, cut right and left with my sword as I went through them. They could not reach me with their knives, and I was only hit by one or two stones. 
A little further on, I was met by a similar party. One had a gun, which he fired at me and broke my sword, leaving only six inches on the handle. He got out of that. He got out of that. Um, but the dam, like, I keep making fun of this poor little horse. But it, it got hit, hit the pony. Yeah, yeah. yeah they had. They, I think they had shot it. Yeah. What? Yeah. So the one of the like the snipers or whatever the the well, snipers you use that term loosely. Jazale armed Afghan Pashtun warriors nail this poor little horse, but the horse still keeps on trucking. But just like it. It is not galloping anymore. It's kind of like walking along, and and Bryden could prop could barely walk himself. I'm sure at this point he's concussed. A bunch of dudes just threw giant big rocks at him. His he, sword <laughs> just got blown to bits in his hand. Yeah, he he had to literally like cut his way through twenty guys throwing rocks at him. They're all slashing him with their knives or their their, their peshkops, and he he barely um. You know what? We'll have to put up like pictures of. We'll find a uh. Actually, I guess we'll we'll so if you refer back to the lithograph thing from um, the 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 first pic, the first painting that we mentioned, you'll notice that the uh, Pashtun warriors are wearing peshkops. So that's what they look like again. They're not insignificant little knives. It sounds like they're like pocket knives, but they were like machetes. Right? He describes them with knives, but they're like machetes, and they're they're hacking him with these things. He somehow cuts it cuts his way out of these guys. His horse is shot. His sword's missing. He's now unarmed concussed probably bleeding i'm sure from everywhere freezing freezing and he's ambushed again then i saw five horsemen in red and supposing they were some of our regular cavalry i made towards them but they were afghans i tried to get away but my pony could hardly move one of them came after me and made a cut at me guarding against which the bit of my sword fell from the hilt he passed me but turned and rode at me again this time just as he was striking I threw the handle of the sword at his head in swerving to avoid, which he only cut me over the back of the left hand. Feeling it disabled, I stretched down to the right to pick up the bridle. I suppose he thought it was for a pistol, for he turned and made off as quick as he could. I felt for the pistol in my pocket, but it was gone. I was unarmed and on a poor animal I feared I could not carry me to Jahalabad. I became nervous and frightened of shadows. I really think that I would have fallen from my saddle but for the peak of it. Jalalabad. Yeah. Learn to pronounce your your foreign names, foreign town you names. You can't right? even. It's it's. <laughs> I, I assume that's. I'm a probably Jalalabad. is probably not even like the. Jalalabad or whatever. Anyways, uh, he miraculously. See, this is why they attack us. We make fun of yeah, their we place keep names. We fun of them. We make fun of. We made fun of their women in this podcast. We didn't make fun of their swords. No, we thought or the swords were pretty skills. cool, but yeah, we've made fun of their women yeah, and their place their women, names. Their place names, uh, but that's about it. I think we're we're okay otherwise. We made fun of the West a little more and, and, yes. and a certain other senile military political yeah. commander. Anyways, um, he actually does make it to Jalalabad. Now I'm saying it wrong. It's a miracle, and yeah. by by every stretch of the imagination, because the guy's like. And there's no reason to doubt his account because he's the only guy there. Yeah. And there's nothing glorious. If, if he if he was lying, there's no way to tell. And also, like, there's nothing particularly glorious about the count. It's just yeah. he loses his weapons. He's like barely able yeah. to fight, and he he gets like jumped three times. He's, yeah, much. he's jumped three times, and he makes a stupid decision of riding towards guys that are wearing red because he's like they must be British, even though for like months at this point they're wearing like their big like dark blue or black coats. 
he's like, oh, they're cavalry, and he rides towards them thinking they're British, and it's just, he gets charged by more Afghans because he thinks they're British. There's nothing particularly glorious or glamorous or even brave about it. It's just, it's sheer desperation and fear and, and uh, you know, f- real f- fight-or-flight stuff, right? And for him, it's all flight. It's just, he's trying to f- f- fight his way out of there is all it is. Uh... And this, this brings us, I guess, to our last painting. And again, it's the Men Among Men story. And I think uh, Bryden, for what it's worth, was a man among men for, for sure. Absolutely. For, for being able to endure all this at, at the at the gates of Jalalabad is a... Again, it's a contemporary painting by Lady Butler, Elizabeth Thomas. Thompson, sorry. Elizabeth. It's a painting by Lady Butler, Elizabeth Thompson, who did some extremely accurate paintings during the late Victorian, uh, early Edwardian era, uh, right, basically right up until the First World War she was painting. She painted a lot of like famous battles, all the way from like Waterloo to uh, the Battle of Mons, uh, the Battle of... Um, I think she did some other World War One ones as well, to be on the Battle of Mons, but I know she has some famous ones from like the 1914 period, amazing amazing paintings because she did a lot of research uh, engaging with that material history so what uniforms the guys were talking to primary source accounts making sure there was like no embellishment in terms of um the depictions of things you'll see that people if they said like the battle was miserable they are depicted as miserable right like the, if you if you look at her paintings like and you'll you'll notice this one with with Bryden here at the gates of Jalalabad, which which we're looking. Do you have it? Yeah, we have it. Oh yeah, we have it. Where'd the painting go? It dropped. No, it's right here. No, we have it. That's it. That's Bryden right there. We're rustling papers. We're gonna keep this in because we are looking at the painting ourselves, right? It's... He's miserable. His his hat's gone. He's like he's got. His horse literally looks like it's about to drop. Yeah, his horse looks like it's about to drop. Um, you can see the 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 guys in Jalalabad. They're like, "Holy crap!" Like that's yeah, that's they're one just of sort ours. of riding out and to they're, meet they're him. They're seen riding out to him in the distance. He looks like honestly a painting of like Don Quixote or something. Like when he's yeah, yeah. The, the older the paintings of Don Quixote is when he's older and he's just mm. like, like sort of just like, kind of like there's real misery. Yeah, they, they, or there's a, there's another famous There's no relief. Poem. There's no relief. There's no yeah. there's no hope in his eyes. It's just like he doesn't even know where he is. There's a famous yeah. poem also called yeah. The Road to El Dorado or something, mm-hmm. which is about this like yep. ancient Spanish conquistador on horseback who's actually accompanied by death. Yep. And there's a painting that goes with his and he's just this old haggard man looking into the and he finally finds like something in the not El Dorado but like in the painting and it's just it, that is the vibe i'm getting from this like he's doomer he's, yeah doomer he's doomer. he's found yeah. what he's looking for but at this point the only thing he's happy about is that i'm alive and not yeah. dead so, that's the only thing left. so in this in this really realistic style again in, in terms of like i'm no i'm no art historian or anything and i just like pretty pictures sometimes but th- th- this is something this you, anybody looking at this can can especially knowing the context can understand why this painting remnants of an army um a lot of different emotions come through 
Uh, she only did this painting about 30 years after the after the incident. I think Bryden had passed away at this point, but she had met people that, that knew Bryden and her, her depiction of his face. And the pictures that I've seen of Bryden are, are pretty pretty good. Um, and the pony, the, the description of the pony and stuff, who I don't think still was never named because the pony actually brought Bryden all the way to the gates of Jalalabad, got in the stable. Then dropped it. Yeah, well, it, from this might have been a Victorian embellishment and a little bit of a flourish, but it, it went to sleep and never woke up is what they said. Yeah. So we can take that with it. It might have just dropped. <laughs> yeah. It had been shot. Yes. But this loyal steed, despite being like the world's smallest pony, you know, a little pony that could to brought him all the way back to Jalalabad. Um, and he had been dismounted off this horse a few times and he got back on and the, the, the pony rather than running away stuck with stuck it with them so in every sense of the word um, the, the pony was a hero of the story yeah. yes uh, but Bryden like I mean amazingly continues with this campaign because the British actually have a quote unquote campaign of vengeance where they go back a and punitive campaign yeah kill yeah. some more uh, more many of these Afghan warriors and then leave again and then our good friend Shah Shuja is assassinated at the end of that and it's just over <laughs> yeah like at the end nobody yeah cares but yeah, yeah Bryden continued to serve uh he was in the second Anglo-Burmese war he was in the Indian mutiny yeah that's right that's right actually Dost Muhammad Khan is actually you know joins up with the British later you know this enemy of the British, who is in the, uh, the yeah, the, like the existential threat enemy, yeah, in the British in, leader of the Afghanistan, yep. yeah, in the eighteen fifty six fifty seven Anglo Persian War. Yep, and interestingly enough, he's actually there with the British, fighting a very European style army because the Persians, just just from the paintings and depictions I've seen, because the modern day Iranians actually keep a very good tab on their history and, and uniform history and stuff, like the regiments that they're fighting look and just the depictions of the victoria cross actions like like we have british cavalry charging into like infantry squares and i when my first glance at the painting i was like is that from like waterloo or something and i'm like no that's in persia so anyways interesting war right before the mutiny right 1856 a year before um yeah but it just showed like how the british within 10 years or just like screw it we'll just we'll, well take what we can a, there is a second anglo-afghan war isn't there i know it's yes yes in the i know yeah, it's not nearly as dramatic or important yeah but yeah it's kind of like a border skirmish isn't it yeah so anyways um back to william bryden you know we we, we don't know what the future holds yes yeah and yeah. actually i think there's it can, it can hold more afghan wars just like it did for the british yeah. it can hold chaos like the indian mutiny and well you know these are all topics we'll discuss well, but and we just just uh, just i guess my my thoughts on on all this crap is my takeaway from all these like stories and the, this specific narrative is just like you know you gotta keep on keep on riding the pony well i i have actually a slightly different take um but also involving the pony uh this loyal steed which presumably died at the end of the uh it did die yes yeah, no yeah. it did die did not presumably it, it died just like <laughs> okay just like it's just left... how it died yeah we just like we left that you know that that's exactly what i was okay. about to say yeah, okay. Yeah, okay there is a sea king 
A very a famous a helicopter. King. A helicopter. Yes, not, you... not a not a, not Poseidon. Okay, you got Not everybody knows it's a helicopter. That's true. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not a not a god of the sea. And a helicopter. <laughs> uh, you know yeah. the actual specific name of this vehicle, oh, right? CH forty-seven. Oh. Okay. Anyway, it was the the famous Sea King that was used to evacuate the last of the. American personnel, I think, from Saigon in nineteen the embassy, the embassy in nineteen seventy three, right? U.S. embassy, seventy five, seventy five, when the war is officially over, yeah, when the South Vietnamese state falls, because the Americans are kind of officially out at seventy three, but the war continues to seventy five. Yeah. This Sea King was used partly in the evacuations um, over the last couple weeks in Afghanistan, and was left behind. And oh, it's going now, to be like, I think it's still being used kind of right now, but... I, I heard it had already fallen into Taliban hands. Oh, really? Yes, and yeah. I mean, hopefully they put it in a museum. I'm a bit I'm a bit skeptical of that. They'll probably, they'll probably use it for target practice for their RPGs, but again, mm-hmm. a loyal horse has died so that its masters could uh, survive and... Uh, Tell the tale. Yeah, my, my, uh, my takeaway from all this is just you got to be careful what messes you step into because Afghanistan, mm. I mean, with the exception of like the Mughal Empire and maybe Alexander the Great, no one seems to go in there and have a good time. I don't think the Mughals had a very good time either. No, and I don't think Alexander the Great did, to be honest. India was kind of where his army said, you know what, we're not going any further. Uh-huh. Anyways, uh, I guess, you know, keep riding the pony and be careful what you step in. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no empire lasts forever, I guess, another way. And even if you bounce back, it's uh, it's not always going to be uphill. There's peaks and valleys to everything, including the lives of, I guess, empires. So thank you for listening to this episode 13. Lucky number 13 of the Men Among Men Stories podcast. As you can see, we have a new logo now, and we're actually recording on a uh, hopefully significantly improved microphone that has much better audio quality that remains to be said because we still got to edit this and stuff uh this is a pretty fun podcast record because it's kind of outside our um norm but i kind of like this format if we do need to talk about something outside of like a specific memoir or a book where we do have we we, we focus on a few characters and uh we give some context to the history um in this case this is something that obviously just happened because Kabul recently fell again we're recording this 24 august 2021 um yeah but this is this is a little bit different for us what else is different you might have noticed is that our logo has changed from our ugly mugs to the four horsemen of history which is something that uh, bindu and i had been discussing for a little while so we'll, we'll discuss it just super quickly here basically on the very top we we decided to well okay so the concept let me let me backtrack a little bit the concept was to do kind of like the four horsemen of the apocalypse but the like you know the four horsemen of military history on the very top of our logo you'll see the uh city and horse archer because that's kind of like a horse archer from antiquity i didn't really want to do like a party i want to like a step warrior because that's that's cool i always found that kind of some romantic notion to the massive slaughter associated with them and the conquest and genocide of many many civilizations Wait, are we talking about the Scythians or the Mongols here? I'm, I'm talking about, like, steppe cultures in general, how, yes, like, scary true. they are. They, yeah, they no, ride no. in, 
they destroy everything and they just like go away and they disappear into history it's weird there's just a few times you know because we have like the huns and we have the like, huns the, the, the mongols the Georgian, the the white huns the white huns yeah so like tamerlane yeah there's a lot there's a lot of these guys that just kind of ride in and destroy everything and leave so anyways like i thought you know the scythians are kind of like neat antiquity era representation of it um he's a he's an antiquity so he's not wearing stirrups right so i tried to make sure the silhouette didn't have stirrups next we have like a high medieval knight yeah late late medieval late? period knight yeah i'd say he looks no, like right? yeah he's he's certainly at um post crusades oh yeah yeah no no so i'd say the late late medieval yes late, yeah late, high, high medieval high medieval late medieval okay uh anyway it's, you can interpret however you want. Yeah, he's a, hundred he's years armored, war type, you know, knight. knight you yeah. know, um, it, it could be a French cavalier at Agincourt. It could be one a, of the warriors in the Hussite wars. Yeah, maybe. it could be a the, Hussite war guy. Yeah. No, it wouldn't wouldn't have been maybe a Hussite knight, but in one of the, maybe the knights riding against them uh, could be yeah. one of the many in the wars in Italy where France and Spain went out. They they still yeah, had I, cavalry. I, I gave him. Uh, I drew this by the way, so if it's crappy, I apologize. But there's a, <laughs> uh, I I, I kind of like it. But anyways, um, there's I, I kind of gave him a bit of a Milanese style armor, so maybe he's more Italian. I don't know. He's just knight. He's a knight. He or she? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows who's beneath that? Or is the right? Sicilian Vespers? Yeah. You could also remember that. I just made like a weird transgender joke, and here you are going on about history all over again. I, I didn't hear. <laughs> I said I said, it could be a he or she under that armor. You never know. Uh, Brad, sure Brad, Bradmont of Claremont. There yeah, was a. True. I mean, actually, that, that's okay, a fictional I, character. I don't know. Whatever. I don't know, man. I, I do not know any female knights. Joan of Arc Anyways. is the closest we yeah. have in history. Anyways, the third guy is a Boer War cavalryman, British, very odd. Well, maybe Australian or Canadian, most likely British. Boer War. I thought that was kind of a, a neat. Because he wanted me to do like a U.S. cavalryman, and he turned out to look like he just looked like a cowboy. Yes. So I'm like, okay, that's not distinctly military. So I went with um with a Boer War guy, and the last one is uh, because it is men among men. Gray Scout, Rhodesian Gray Scout. Uh, well, he could theoretically be like a South African mounted tr patrol or a BSAP yeah. guy, but I, I'll say he's a Gray Scout. He's got the FN. He's got the Kecko flap cap flying in the wind, mm -hmm. um, riding into battle. So that's the uh, that's. That's the new logo. I think it's kind of cooler, and we're going to put that on some merch and that kind of stuff. So look out for that in the near future. Yes. And that'll be Maybe out by the time this podcast is. I doubt it. I doubt it. We're not that effective. We're not that Okay, smart. fair enough. We're not that efficient. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll try. We'll try. Yes. But yeah, it, um, actually, this will be up in like two days. So yeah, so probably time. not. But in the near future, you will be seeing it actually on this website if you are listening on the Men Among Men Stories uh, official website. If you're listening to us on one of our other platforms, whether it be Apple Podcasts, uh, or sorry, iTunes, rather, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or all the other miscellaneous uh, platforms that we're on now, and perhaps maybe even YouTube in the near future, uh, again, if you're not listening there, you can find this merch in the near future at www.menamongmenstories.com. Again, that's www.menamongmenstories.com. Dot com. Also, a shout out to you, a special shout out to you, if you are listening on Commando Blog or friends there. If you're not familiar with Commando Blog, 
they're an excellent web resource for all things you know commando lifestyle so obviously they host this podcast they talk a lot about guns the outdoors gear reviews I think there's some other podcasts on there as well you can check out, but none as good as ours. So we are hosted on there. If you haven't already, definitely definitely check them out because they get like demonetized or deplatformed all the time by all the other social media networks. Kind of underground, but they're super cool. Check them out. Commando Blog, K-O-M-M-A-N-D-O, blog.com. Definitely check them out. As well, I'd like to give a shameless self-plug to my own company, Fire Force Ventures at fireforceventures.com. We sell all things military surplus, including some stuff that came back from Afghanistan probably in the past few years. If you're into that, uh, we obviously sell like Rhodesian Brushstroke, a whole bunch of cool militaria. Bindu, you're wearing some right now. What is a hat you've got there? Well, you got to describe it because, you know, people are listening. It's a baseball cap. <laughs> okay, that's it. That, that's it. That's it. It wow, is a beautiful that, baseball I, cap. I, why? With in Rhodesian brushstroke, it's much better than the old caps Fire Force Ventures used to sell. Thank you for that. Yeah, he's you're wearing a you got a you gifted a by me a a brushstroke ball cap today, which we actually just restocked on the website. If you're listening to this on maybe the 26th or whatever of August, we might still have them, but uh, they the brushstroke tends to go pretty quick, as you know. And you look around here right now, we're recording in the Fire Force bunker right now. There's not a lot of brushstroke left. Nope. No, it's it's always it's always it's, it comes as soon as I'm here, it's always shipping out. Yeah, and I am still doing pre-orders and stuff for a lot of uh, Rhodesian brushstroke kit and three two battalion kit and ripstop. And for as far as the Rhodesian stuff goes, in the original um, uniform configuration, so definitely check that out. So definitely check out www.fireforceventures.com. You can follow me at Fireforce Ventures on facebook and at fireforce.ventures don't forget the dot on instagram i do post there pretty regularly with all kinds of um well men among men stories and uh just general updates in reference to my website you can also obviously find our podcast again men among men stories.com you can also find us on social media just at men among men stories is that right on absolutely on both instagram and facebook that's right so you can find us on both those platforms we're going to be on YouTube pretty soon. Um, as I mentioned, we're on basically every single podcasting uh, service platform, out there, yeah. platform out there. So until we eventually get demonetized for making fun of people, whatever it happens, uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll take it, take the punch, roll the punches. That's the expression. And of course, uh, it's you know especially with given the contents of this particular podcast. Um, Many thanks to those, especially uh, in those that suffered grievous wounds, whether physical or psychological, over the past 20 years in Afghanistan. I'm sure that as a guy like William Bryden was riding to the gates of Jalalabad, he too felt that it was all in vain. And... As long as the memory of what the war was to us in the West, and as long as the war that unfortunately we have for all intents and purposes lost is one that we are willing as a society and a people, a culture, a civilization to recover from, 
will bounce back. So, special thanks to you guys and what you did over the past 20 years. Whether that be the dudes that first went over in 2001 to um, the young men and women at Kabul Airport right now continuing to evacuate the many thousands of foreign nationals and Afghan allies trying to get out of the country right now. Special thanks to you guys. And uh, of course, to all that continue to serve in military, law enforcement, first responders, that's including EMT, firefighters, dispatchers. Keep riding on that pony. So pull up, grab a chibouli, and get the hell out of Kabul.